Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. Glad to have all of you with us for another edition of Political Rewind, yet another day in which we all find ourselves in unprecedented circumstances. Um, Most of you working from your homes, your apartments, not going into uh, offices to do your jobs. Increasingly, retail operations are being shut down voluntarily. Restaurants, Macy's announced that it was closing all of its stores, and we have hundreds and hundreds, um, if not more, Macy's employees living in the metro Atlanta area. So the situation continues to force us to live in ways we simply haven't lived before, but we are committed to making sure the political rewind brings you the news about the virus uh, and, of course, about politics every day. I'm broadcasting from a very cozy room in uh, our home in Greater Decatur. My wife and daughter are both here. Uh, Our son and his wife are hunkered down in their house. So we're all truly in this together. Uh, Before I introduce the panel very quickly, let me point out just the headline, the top headline, I think, in the news today about coronavirus. We now have 197 cases uh, diagnosed in the state of Georgia. That was reported yesterday by Commissioner of Public Health Catherine Toomey. Uh, That's up more than 50 cases from the day before, and we've now sadly had four deaths from COVID-19. We're seeing a a real spike in southwest Georgia in the Albany area, but also a patient in the Embry Hospital complex uh, passed away from the disease. Um, Excuse me. Um, So let's move forward with the show. We have a guest today who has been making a lot of news in the past week or so. I'll introduce him in just a second, but first let me introduce our regular panelists. Kevin Riley, the editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is with us from, uh, I think you're, you're in Midtown somewhere, aren't you, Kevin? You know, uh, Bill, I've actually uh, uh, sequestered myself to, uh, in South Carolina. We, we have a place over uh, near Charleston, and this is where my wife was, and this is where the dog is. And so that's where I am today. <laughs> and I'm a part of, a, you know, we entirely emptied the AJC newsroom uh, for fear of people uh, possibly being exposed and then being forced to self-quarantine. Really, for over a week, our folks have all been working from home or from elsewhere for, for the very reasons you cited at the top of the show, which is we have a huge obligation to bring people the best possible news and information in the middle of all this, too. And we also know something that's very special about the newspaper that I know, and I know so many of your listeners are readers and subscribers, and it's this. When that newspaper lands in your driveway in the morning, or if you get it by email, it's a, it's become in this crisis a precious piece of normalcy. For people, they, I am hearing from people, and they so much appreciate that amid all of the chaos in their lives, that newspaper is showing up, and they can sit down and read it with that cup of coffee, and that little piece of their life is normal as they try to cope with this thing. Well, Kevin, that was very heartwarming, almost like a commercial. It was very, well, but, but I understand exactly 
what you're saying. Um, I think and that's the, right. I think we all are looking for some little bit of normalcy. Right. And, and as you know, just like the folks at GPB, journalists find themselves so dedicated to making sure people can know what they need to know. And that's that's why, I mean, I applaud your engineers and producers because somehow they put this show together with no one in the studio. Yeah. All right. Uh, Kyle Hayes, uh, who you hear on Peach Pod, uh, his great podcast about politics in Georgia is uh, joining us from Washington. And uh, we're going to get to him in just a minute. And later in the show, Buddy Darden uh, will be with us. But all of that said, it's really time to get to our uh, guest for uh, the show today. Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger has been kind enough to join us Um Secretary of State Raffensperger, thank you for uh, taking a little while to be on Political Rewind. How is it? First of all, just a general well, question we're asking everybody. Are you sequestered at home? Uh, I am this morning. I wanted to uh, be able to call in. Uh, and so very, very grateful for this opportunity to talk to you this morning. Well, we're glad to have you. Let me start it and, and we'll uh, allow invite our others to, to weigh in with questions for you. Uh, the decision to move the March 24th primary to May 19th uh, is how complicated, in the simplest way, how complicated was it to arrive at that decision, and what complications does moving the primary date now present to you and your staff? Well, we made the decision to move uh, the presidential primary to suspend it and to move it out and complete it. Uh, on the in the May primary, uh, primarily we, we saw the just the, what's what was happening on the ground. Uh, poll workers were starting to call in sick. Anyone that was over the age definitely of 65. The average age of poll worker is 72, and so there was a concern there. And so we we started to have an issue with poll workers. Then we started uh, just seeing the issues of people collecting in groups. Uh, they it really started changing very quickly. And we had another uh, week to go of early voting, which would be going on right now if we had not suspended. And you look at where everyone is right now. Uh, they are, many people are at home. Uh, businesses are shutting. Uh, Delta is off 70%. So you just saw what was happening really accelerated very quickly. And then we would have be, we'd be faced with an election on Tuesday, March 24th. And so our, our concern was the health of our poll workers and also the voters that show up. And so we made that decision. But before we did, we wanted to make sure we reached out to all the, the stakeholders. And and really, for this primary, the key stakeholder was the Democrat Party. The Republican Party primary only had one name on that, and they were very flexible. And um, we understood that we had to work with the Democrat Party and very grateful for the work of uh, Senator Nakima Williams and her team that we discussed some options. And then as we worked and discussed those options, uh, we came up with a plan that worked for everyone that they were good to go and we were good to go. And so we put that out and that allowed us to say, look, we're going to suspend and then we'll pick up early voting in about 30 to to 40 days uh, from now. And uh, then we'll move on. In the meantime, we obviously are focused on a very uh, robust absentee ballot application program. We don't know what the situation looks like in May, but we really have to prepare, you know, for continuation of the same. If things improve, great, we can adjust up. But we don't want to expect that this all blows over and then we have a a big issue in May. So we're preparing for a similar situation we have right now so we can handle voting for the May primary. 
Kevin Riley, uh, one of the noteworthy uh, aspects of this was the fact that uh, uh, Raffensperger's office did reach out to Nakima Williams We, in a rare display of partisanship that we've talked about on the show before. Although I will point out, Mr. Raffensperger, that when people on Republicans on our show talk about the Democrat Party, they tend to get a lot of pushback from our listeners. So I just want to make sure we are on the same page uh, that uh, – we, we all understand it's the Democratic Party, right? Kevin, you want yeah. to jump in? Yeah, uh, Secretary Raffensperger, I think that a lot of people uh, around the nation admire the alacrity with which you you uh, handled this this primary. And, of course, as a, you know, we were chatting before the show, you know I'm a native Ohioan, and I watched what, what, the, what went on in Ohio, which involved lawsuits and, and disagreements. Why do you think it, it was easier to do in Georgia, even though, you know, this, all the statewide offices are really dominated by Republicans. And the major issue here was, of course, the, the Democratic primary. Well, I think uh, our office understands how important elections are. Uh, we've been uh, really making sure that we touch all the corners. So before we make the decision, we want to make sure that we reach it, you know, that the, the House, the Senate, uh, also the, the political parties uh, understand these are the options, and we want to, you know, lay that out to them with in a transparent process. I, I guess that comes from my business background, but uh, sometimes in business you don't agree with everyone, but you sit down and you talk about it. And so when we can reach common ground, I think it's much better, particularly in a situation like this, where we do have, you know, we everyone has a particular viewpoint, a particular interest, but we have to come together and say, okay, what would really work for everyone? And we believe that what we uh, struck was a responsive chord that uh, both parties can support. And obviously it works for our poll workers, it works for uh, voters. And so I think it's a, a great solution we have, and we're just fortunate um, the new voting system allows us to you know, really suspend it, keep those votes that have already been you know, made for the presidential primary. So if you have voted in the presidential primary, your vote is secure. It will be counted. And then we can roll forward in May and complete the presidential primary and then have the primary elections for your state house, your state rep, your sheriffs, and your uh, county commissioners and all those other contested races in May. Hey, Mr. Raffensperger, I know Kyle Hayes wants to get in, but I, based on what you just said, I really want to ask you a quick question. This is a really a very basic and logistical question, but, but, but let's say that I did uh, vote early for the Democratic presidential uh, candidate. When I go into the polling place on May 19th to cast a ballot, will your system allow for that race to be deleted from my screen so that I'm not voting twice? I don't have the... Uh, opportunity to vote twice for that. I'm just curious about exactly. the logistics of that, as I think yeah. a lot of people are. Yeah, exactly. That is the benefit of the new voting system. In other words, if you had voted in the Democrat primary, when you show up, the Democrat presidential primary will not be on your ballot. But likewise, if your friend across the street has not voted, when they show up in May, then they will have that opportunity to vote for their presidential primary. So no one's okay. No that's one good gets, to know. No one gets to vote twice. But also everyone that has voted, that vote has been secured and it will be counted. Kyle? Yeah, Bill, thanks for having me on this morning. And thanks, Secretary Raffensperger, for joining us. I'm curious if you could get a little more into what the situation is going to be with absentee ballots. 
whether or not those are going to go to certain segments of voters or all voters and how within the absentee ballot situation, you also deal with this. Some people voted early and want to come back and vote in the state primaries later on. Yeah. Um, so right now we're really gathering information and uh, looking at uh, what would be the mechanics and what is the cost. Uh, it would be, you know, our intention, uh, obviously anyone over the age of 65, our intention is to send them an application for an absentee ballot. Uh, we're also going to have a very robust uh, public relations campaign. We'll update our website. Uh, we'll be doing social media. But I believe that both political parties also understand, you know, what the situation is on the ground. And so I'm sure that they'll be doing their work also. And that's, you know, you know, bless them for both <laughs> what they're going to be doing. But our job is to get the applications out. We look at uh, age 65, and then we want to look at some, can we roll that down to age 60, 55? Can we do it for everyone? And so we're just really right now looking at the total cost and you know, logistics uh, for that. And we should have that all um, worked out uh, sometime next week. But we understand that time is short because you will cover ballot, ballots go out the first week in April. And so we are on very, very tight deadlines even though we're talking about the May 19th, when you have three weeks of early voting, you really have to start moving quickly. What about moving on to the fall elections? I saw some reporting yesterday that indicated that this could be an issue for as long as 18 months. Um, it may not last that long, but it could be a while. As you're thinking about the fall, what kinds of things are you thinking about for the even bigger election there? And how is that impacted by the staff availability that you have with people maybe having to work from home? Well, at the end of the day, uh, for the fall election, we're expecting uh, up to 5 million people that would vote in that if, if prior to all the situation. Uh, and we were expecting for the May primary, uh, probably, you know, in the order of say 3 million people to so ramp it up. But when you're doing an absentee ballot application, you, have 7.2 million voters, whether it's in May or whether the election is in November. So really for us, the scope, it would be the same. And we'll just wait and see how uh, COVID-19, you know, plays itself out over the next few months and then what that looks like. Uh, but we'll be prepared for worst case scenarios just because we think that's the prudent action to take. Um, uh, uh, I want to give Kevin Riley another chance, but but let me uh, go back to absentee ballots for just a second, please, Secretary Raffensperger, um, and and talk about it in more detail. You're, we certainly don't know what the situation on the ground is going to be like on May 19th. I know that a, a volunteer poll workers, you've already moved the date to protect the older people who tend to be volunteers. I'm sure you're concerned and trying to solve problems of how you will man polling places. But if the virus is still rampant, if we're still being asked to isolate ourselves, if you could, can, if you had the budget, if you can identify the amount of money needed, um, and then the manpower, woman power to then tally the votes, would you like to see this entire primary election run as an absentee election with ballot applications going out virtually to all registered voters? I think that we have to always give voters, uh, it's right, It's codified in state law. I think right now that we have to really give voters the three choices. 
Uh, obviously, we want to encourage the absentee ballot process to you know, make sure that everyone's aware of that option of voting absentee and also that they feel comfortable with that process. By and large, most people have shown up to vote. It's either that three weeks of early voting or the day of voting. Uh, uh, early voting obviously isn't high turnout, and many people will still feel comfortable going there. And then on the day of voting, there may be some voters that still want to show up. The question will be then manning it with poll workers. But the more that we can push uh, people out for the absentee ballot process, I think the smoother election we will have. But I think at the end of the day, we would still anticipate to have all three options for voters uh, with, the, with the expectation that more people will, will gravitate towards the absentee ballot uh, option. You know, Kevin, uh, what's interesting about this, and I certainly want you to feel free to ask whatever question you want, but I'd be interested in your feedback on this. It, in the last couple of years, since the 2018 election cycle, there probably has been no uh, bigger hot spot for partisan uh, bickering than uh, elections in the state of Georgia and beyond. Uh, threat, you know, c- concerns about voter suppression, about absentee ballots that aren't being counted properly, whatever. And yet... Uh, It's fascinating that Secretary Raffensperger has been able to work positively with Democrats at a time when there has been so much concern about what's happening with election offices. And uh, it's an opportunity, it it seems to me, uh, to move forward. I mean, even Lauren Groh-Wargo, who runs Fair Fight Action, has been uh, saying that she likes the way that they're moving forward. So, Kevin, we may be entering a new era who knows? Well, I do think that that is, uh, again, you know, what has happened here is it's thrown the election process and accessibility out in the open. And I, and I do think that that works in everybody's favor, no matter where you are on the uh, spectrum of political views, because I don't think anybody really ever wants to keep people from voting or be seen as keeping people from voting. Um, let me let me ask something that, again, a very practical question, Secretary Raffensperger, is, uh, all right, let's say I'm a person who is a dedicated voter, but I'm also very worried about where this coronavirus thing is, or I have underlying health conditions. What should I do right now if I'm used to going and voting in person on Election Day, but I better be ready to avoid those crowds and do other things, and I don't have a chance to do the early voting? What would you Say to me, hey, Kevin, do the following to make sure that you, you vote and it, 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 it is counted and it, 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 it's, you know, you participate in the process. What should I be thinking about right now? Well, I would tell you right now to go to our website and go ahead and request to be uh, for an absentee ballot for the next election. We have no excuse uh, absentee balloting in the state of Georgia. So anyone right now that's you know hearing what we're saying, they can go to the Secretary of State's uh, website. We can you can request you know call your election official or send them an email. But you can request an absentee ballot for the next upcoming election. And so that's something that's available to everyone. But the issue is many people don't really take advantage of that or have never used it due to hesitation. But now there's really a necessity they may believe, and and so. They can do that right now, but we obviously are going to send out applications to, to folks, and we're just looking at what age group, you know, can we do everyone, or will we have to do a 65? So we're looking at that, and we'll we'll have an answer for everyone, you know, next week sometime, or, as, you know, as soon as possible. We understand how critical that is. But right now, you can go to our website 
and request an absentee ballot for the next election. One final question, uh, because I know we have to cut you loose in a moment. Uh, this does, you're, you're working with the new equipment, all the new computer systems that have gone out to uh, every precinct in the state. Uh, and the training has been ongoing, but to an extent, this gives you a little breathing room, doesn't it? If you, assuming that you've got people who are uh, out there training on the machines, you get a little extra time to uh, have people up to speed on these things. Is that correct? Yeah. Or is all the training complete? Uh, all the training is complete, but it's additional time and training, so additional um, you know, iterations of the voting process. So the more muscle memory you can build in, obviously, the better it is. The issue that we probably will have statewide was that we'll probably have a reduction in poll workers that show up uh, just because of the age of some of the poll workers and their you know, legitimate health concerns that, uh, where this uh, COVID-19 goes. You know, they're, they're, they're concerned about corona, and rightly so. And so the system may be up and the people that we have are trained, but we may not have the same number of poll workers. So if you go to our website, uh, it says, you know, uh, sign up to be a poll worker. And so we've been reaching out this entire year because regardless if it's a new equipment, every year we always need more poll workers. And so well, we're really reaching out to, you know, people that are involved in the student ambassadorship program, anyone that six age 16 and older can be a poll worker. And you did some, say something earlier about being a volunteer. Well, it's sort of volunteer, but we actually get do, you do get paid for it. Now, you're not going to be able to retire off yeah. that money, but it is a paid position. Yeah. Uh, um, but it's, it's a great uh, way of giving back to your civic uh, community, uh, to your state. Uh, it's just, and people really learn an awful lot about the election process. I mean, they understand, oh, this is a very methodical process. And these are really dedicated you know, workers that are putting these elections together. I think it, you know, gives them renewed respect for the whole entire election process. Are you, one last question, are you dialing down your estimate for what you expect the turnout to be for voting on May 19th, um, especially in-person voting? Could that have an impact on whether, on on, on uh, uh, local polling places, how they decide to staff them? Are you Are you giving guidance to what you think might happen next in terms of turnout? Uh, no, not yet. Uh, what I wouldn't want to do is dial it back and all of a sudden everyone shows up because it's a sunny day. You know, it, this all blows over and it was just like a nightmare. Uh, and so we we want people to still, our election officials, still be prepared for those numbers. But we understand, uh, we expect the numbers may be shifting, obviously, to the absentee ballot process. And so we'll still have big numbers and we have to process those you know, in a very timely fashion. All right. Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, thank you so much for taking time to uh, be with us today. I think uh, Democrats or Republicans, we all uh, look for uh, you, wish you well in running an election under difficult circumstances, but running a fair and uh, accurate election. So thanks for being with us uh, today, Secretary Raffensperger. Take well, care. Thank you, for, thank you for the invite. Appreciate it. Okay, let's do this. Let's take our first break in Political Rewind. When we come back, uh, Buddy Darden will be joining us, and we'll continue our conversation with uh, Kevin Riley uh, and uh, uh, and uh, Peach Pod, uh, Kyle Hayes. But first, these messages.
You know, we always like... Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. I'd like uh, to be transparent about how this show works, and so I want to give you uh, a little insight about why you will have heard a couple times this week some of our panelists have joined us later. Um, the, and Buddy Darden is an example of that. How are you, Buddy? Good morning. Greetings from beautiful downtown Marietta. <laughs> yeah, glad to have you. Uh, what I was starting to say is um, the audio board in our control room back at the Georgia Public Broadcasting headquarters in Midtown, uh, it's a very sophisticated board in many ways. The one uh, struggle that we have is it only allows us to have three people three panelists plus me uh, patched through the board at any given time. So quite often you're used to hearing me and four panelists. We don't have that luxury, and so we're kind of having to shift people in and out. But, Buddy, as you well know, it is by no means a, a disparagement of your participation and wanting you on this show. Well, I'm glad to be here, and Kevin is so good to get the morning paper it's coming every day, and it's a big part of our lives here. <laughs> See, this is why we always say buddies here by popular demand, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, l- let's, let's talk just for a, a couple of minutes about what we heard uh, Raffensperger uh, say. Um, Kyle, the idea that he could expand the number of absentee ballot applications that go out, that they could advertise for people to uh, use the mails to vote. What's interesting about that is, of course, there have been a lot of people who have urging for some time that mailing your vote in is a much more uh, practical and uh, uh, good, a, a, a good way, basically, to, to vote. Yeah, there's at least a couple states out west that do all of their elections this way. Um, and so this seems to be a pretty good test of that process for Georgia. I think he mentioned in that segment that all voters are allowed to request an absentee ballot without having any sort of excuse for doing so. Um, and so this may give the state an opportunity to test this. And it seems like given the public health situation that we're in, it's the most prudent course to encourage absentee ballot voting. Well, now, Bill, it's you were true. Kevin, it during the campaign when the secretary was running against uh, John Barrow, that John Barrow actually proposed that uh, we have unlimited absentee ballots and, and uh, mail-in ballots. But at that time, I guess show you how things change, uh, he was opposed to it. But I guess the new realities make a different situation. Yeah. Um, well, we're going to watch how all of that unfolds. Um, let me just give you a couple more headlines in the coronavirus uh, story today. Um, We've reported in our in our headlines on this show, State Senator Brandon Beach from Alpharetta has been uh, diagnosed with COVID-19. He was at the Capitol last Monday for the special one-day session in which the emergency powers were given by the legislature to Governor Kemp. So uh, the entire legislature has been encouraged to stay in, uh, in some form of self-quarantine. That in itself is really kind of dramatic news. Um, uh, 
That includes, by the way, the Speaker of the House, David Ralston, and Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan. Delta has cut, now they tell us, 70% of their flights. They have 10,000 employees on unpaid leave. And uh, Governor Kemp has uh, established priorities for who should get coronavirus tests. He wants them to go to medical workers, law enforcement, the elderly, and those with chronic health conditions. In part, that's because we continue in this state and states around the country to have a shortage of test kits that are available to, uh, to be able to test more broadly. Uh, Kevin Riley, that is the fact that we are so deep into this crisis now and we are still struggling as a state and as a country to test is probably going to end up being one of the really major stories of a lack of preparedness. Yes? I think you're absolutely correct, Bill. Um, and let me apologize. You may, be, you may hear my Irish setter, uh, McMurray, barking in the background. He's a huge fan of the show <laughs> and wanted to be on with me, but I had to sequester him elsewhere, elsewhere yeah. in the house. Maybe we can have him on another time. But um, look, the yeah. testing thing is the issue. And I got a chance to talk to one of the top healthcare executives in Atlanta earlier this week. And the facts are, are really simple. The tests are being rationed and the uh, healthcare providers have got to make brutally practical decisions about whom should be tested, who should be tested. And those are going to be very high risk people demonstrating, you know, really strong symptoms and probably people who are healthcare workers because there just aren't enough tests. And despite what people are hearing about, oh, there are going to be these drive-through testing places and there's going to be this. And, and honestly, this, this executive took great umbrage with what the president has been saying at those daily uh, press conferences that occur that keep, keep, where he keeps assuring people there will be plenty of tests. Because on the ground, there are simply not enough tests. Everybody on the front lines knows that. And everybody knows that as long as that exists, Many people who want to be tested or maybe could be tested will not be tested and it will only be in the most extreme cases. And you mentioned at the opening of the show, right, about what's going on down in Albany. I mean, that hospital has had patients die while they're waiting for the test results. I mean, think about that for a second. That is not a situation in the American healthcare system that any of us are used to. Um, thank you for, for that. I, I think part of it, though, uh, Kyle, is um, we're still str- I, I, we are still looking for the clearest information possible, I think, about who really does need to be tested. Uh, if I, you know, I'm, I, if I have a, a, what seem to be symptoms of the disease, I'm being told by some uh, sources that if, it, if, it's, if I I'm not terribly sick. I shouldn't worry about being tested. Uh, I'm just concerned, Kyle, that we're still a little in the dark about whether we all need to get tested or not. Yeah, and I think this necessitates among public officials the need to be as cautious as possible and as active as possible on enforcing social distancing measures. Um, we And I don't know if I'm jumping the gun, but we may... Uh, talk about this soon, about Governor Kemp being a little bit reluctant to use his authority to close down bars and restaurants and movie theaters and other public places. But without having 
information that we could get if we had widespread comprehensive testing. I think it makes it more important that we're more cautious around social distancing um, because the extent of this outbreak without all of those testing results is still a little unclear. So that that leads me. Point. Yeah, go ahead, buddy. Kyle makes a very good point. However, the situation in which the governor finds himself today is a very diverse state with so many different situations throughout the state, from rural to urban to suburban and so forth. And it appears to me that the governor, under the circumstances, is doing about the best he can do. And one thing he is doing that uh, I think is paramount, paramount to any public official, is rely on your medical professionals. Nobody expects Governor Kemp to know everything about this situation, especially when it's not even known to the medical people. So the best he can do, he can do is rely on uh, the people who are advising him. He's very fortunate, by the way, to have Dr. Toomey, who is nationally, even internationally regarded in this area. And so as long as he is relying on the best possible help he can, he can get and the best possible medical advice and put three lines on the medical, then I think that that uh, will work itself out. There's a contrast at the national level, however, and I think if you look at the way in contrast what Governor Kemp has done with what the president has done, I think certainly uh, the approach that has been used by Governor Kemp is the best. Keep everybody informed. Uh, share the uh, mic with people who know what they're talking about, and don't try to uh, pretend that you know things that you don't. Don't make statements that you can't back up. And Governor Kemp, I think, while he's been measured here in, in many, many respects, I think he gets high marks uh, as things stand now. Kevin? Well, I, you know, I, I, I always understand uh, Buddy's, you know, somewhat zeal to criticize the president, and, and the president certainly has, a, has, what has invited some of that criticism. But I don't think there's much question that um, – a lot of people believe that Governor Kemp has been maybe a little bit too slow, a little bit too uh, cautious on making bold moves, because we're definitely not doing some of the things that are being done in other states, including neighboring states, where um, there have been strong uh, statements about closing bars and restaurants. And, and even the federal advice now is to not gather in groups of more than, I think it's 10 people. So at some point we've got to, we're going to see whether this was the right approach in Georgia but i would say that um many people feel the governor could act with uh more uh alacrity on on several of these issues Kevin i mean Kyle well and i think that adds to kind of a second layer of the response that's needed from both the state and federal government uh because there is this push and pull between closing businesses for public health purposes, particularly for frontline workers who work there. But that's obviously going to have economic consequences for those workers and those businesses. And so that's why there's a need for both the state to step in and offer economic relief in the form of making the food stamp program or the SNAP program more accessible by not enforcing work requirements in that program, by also potentially making the Medicaid program more accessible. And then Congress needs to step up with uh, financial relief uh, to workers who may be impacted by these closures so that you can 
take the steps necessary to protect public health by closing establishments, but not have it hurt people economically when they lose their hours or lose their job. Well, of course, Congress is now working on its third package of some relief, and uh, we, we imagine there's even going to be more to come, and there are certainly gaps in there, as you point out, Kyle. But I want to go to another aspect of this, which really I think is underlying all of what we're talking about here, especially as we look at how uh, governors and, and government leaders uh, in other states, including Georgia, are responding to this. So Pew Research yesterday released a major study of attitudes about coronavirus. And, you know, Pew is one of the real gold standards when it comes to uh, uh, talking to the public and ascertaining their points of view. And, and I think this is fascinating and worth pointing out. Pew says views of how Trump, Democratic leaders, and the news media have responded to the risks of the coronavirus are highly partisan. Now, they say there's bipartisan agreement that officials at CDC have responded appropriately. 64% of Democrats and Democratic leaders and 63% of Republicans say that CDC has gotten this right. That's interesting because I think there are lots of reasons to look closely at whether CDC really has gotten it all right. But here's the key. Roughly three-quarters of Republicans, 76%, say the news media have exaggerated the risk of coronavirus, and of those Republicans, 53% say they have greatly exaggerated them. Democrats are less likely uh, to say that. Um, 49% of Democrats believe the media has exaggerated coronavirus compared to 41% who think they've got it right. My point is, if you've got 76% of Republicans, Kevin, saying that we in the news media have been exaggerating this uh, it's got to have an impact on Republican leaders and how they think about their visions for dealing with this in their in their own locales. Well, I do think it, it, it's having an impact, um, and and we'll see how it plays out. Of course, uh, viruses and the science of disease are nonpartisan, and so I, in the end, at uh, some day, this will all come clear. But it does seem strange that we find, well, I shouldn't say it seems strange. I, I suppose it's a natural outcome of what's been going on for politi in politics for a while now, um, where the two sides have, have seen everything in partisan terms, and even the most basic facts can't be agreed upon. Uh, the truth is, is that um, there, ought to, there ought to be science that, 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 we, that we follow in a situation like this, and there ought to be wide agreement, uh, no matter what your political affiliation. And it's just sad that to see it um, fall into that, especially when it becomes clear that uh, lives are at stake and people are dying as a result of this pandemic. Buddy, we do know that during the early weeks of our uh, beginning to understand what we were facing, Fox News was downplaying this dramatically, as was the president, Fox News day after day, saying that uh, this was an exaggerated threat, in some cases saying that it was uh, the, late, the next step in Democrats' efforts to undo the Trump presidency. Uh, all, all of that can't help but weigh in the minds of uh, leaders as they think about what their constituents want from them. Buddy? Uh, uh, Have we lost you, buddy? Virus. 
uh, and medical problems, uh, no, no political parties. And I think that we need to back up a little bit and determine uh, how to solve this problem by listening to the experts, by listening to the people who know and understand what there is to be known about this. And I won't say give them a blank check, but at the same time be guided in our decisions about how we uh, make decisions to our constituents and what restrictions we, we uh, impose on them based on realistic medical proje projections. And again, um, the great thing about being uh, in uh, public life, either as a governor or a president, is you have the best people available to you uh, on these topics. So. Uh, you need to listen to them and abide by them and and uh, take some bold bold steps if necessary. Kyle, before we break, you want to weigh in on that? Yeah, I think part of the challenge in terms of interpreting how the media is, uh, how they are describing the risks here, is that the effects in our own communities seem to lag a little bit from really bad news coming from other countries, particularly some of the really horrifying reports from Italy. Um, and so I think it's important for people to understand that Italy was further along in the process than in, the, in terms of the spread of the virus than we were. Um, and so those risks that are being communicated from the media to listeners and viewers are reflective of what happened in Italy and what may be coming if there's not a proper response here in the States. By the way, Kevin, I would not, and as we go to break, I would not ever excuse the media entirely from, especially TV, especially local news, from its ability to uh, overstate, to blow up stories in such a way that scare us a lot more than we'd like to be scared in many cases. We see that in weather reporting sometimes. This is one of those times when I'm not sure you can overblow how serious this threat is. Well, I do think you're right about that, Bill. And uh, if if we're going to uh, uh, at, at certain media outlets or whether people are using their social media feeds, we know that a extreme or breathlessly urgent tone in in times of sort of normalcy can lead, you know, to greater uh, ratings and or uh, engagement. And uh, that's what I would uh, urge people. I, I know that a lot of people are on Facebook and Twitter, but please remember those those platforms are set up to increase engagement. They were never really uh, created as good news outlets. In other words, they they are they are about stirring people up for people to make that next click. They're not really about well informing people in the way that this show is. Right. and Kyle's uh, podcast is, and the Atlanta Journal-Constitution is. Our goal is to inform you and to arm you with information that makes you a more well-informed citizen who can make good decisions for you and your family. And that is not right. what's happening on Facebook. Well, we All right, i got to give you the last word of the second. The traditional media is yeah. our enemy, and if we disagree with something we see, then, of course, uh, they've got it all wrong and are biased and prejudiced. All right. Hey, I've, buddy, I, I'm sorry. I don't want to interrupt you. I've got to get to our final break of the show. When we come back, I want to turn at least briefly to a story that you personally, Buddy Darden, are involved uh, in. This is Political Rewind. <laughs> 
Welcome back to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut, joined today by Kyle Hayes. You hear him on Peach Pod, one of the really terrific podcasts about state uh, politics in Georgia. Kevin Riley, the editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, joining us. And Buddy Darden, a former U.S. congressman, Democratic congressman in the 7th District in Georgia. A quick note, the uh, governor... We've talked about him a bit in the show today, is holding a news conference at 4 o'clock this afternoon about coronavirus and where we stand. We'll be carrying that live on GPB Radio, and you'll also be able to watch it, if you would like, at GPB News at face, on Facebook at gpbnews.org. Uh, so plenty of ways for you to watch that uh, program. Um, so, Buddy Darden, you are, and we want to be transparent about this, too. You are representing John Barrow, former Congressman John Barrow, who wants to run for what is a seat in the state Supreme Court. Uh, he's one of two candidates who want to run that in that race, Beth Beskin, the Republican being the other one. And uh, they bit for a, kind of a convoluted uh, uh, effort they're being denied so far the right to do that because of the way in which the resignation of the justice uh, who's vacating that seat is being handled. Could you give us in two minutes your basic understanding? You know what this means. What exactly is going on here? I'll be as brief as possible. Uh, first of all, the Constitution of Georgia provides that the justice of the Supreme Court shall be elected in six-year terms. Uh, justice Keith Blackwell... Uh, decided uh, just a few days before uh, he was to qualify for another term that he would not run for another term. And uh, rather than simply not qualifying, uh, he sent a resignation into the governor a couple of days before the qualifying for the open seats began on the Supreme Court and said that I am resigning uh, effective November the 18th of 2020, and uh, the governor immediately accepted that as a resignation and said that uh, since you uh, have resigned and I've accepted your resignation, I'm directing the Secretary of State on the the advice of the Attorney General not to open qualifying and that I will fill your vacancy uh, by appointment. And uh, so, in, in other words, the governor is contending that the seat is vacant, and so he's allowed to make an appointment. We maintain that uh, the Constitution of Georgia provides that these posts, when um, when they are, are no one runs for them, um, ought to be done by election, and that we believe and contend that the uh, justice, uh, in collusion with the governor and the attorney general, has frankly, uh, bypassed the voters here and decided to make this very, very important appointment to take it away from the people and have um, the governor make the appointment when the judge uh, leaves office. They're contending that the office is vacant upon the the letter. We contend that the office uh, doesn't get vacant until the justice leaves on the uh, 18th day or 19th day of November, and there's plenty of time to elect his successor. So we have a very basic, very basic uh, disagreement here. And so we have sued so, uh, uh, the Secretary of State uh, asking for an order uh, from the courts to order him to accept the qualifying petitions of 
John Barrow, who is a Democrat but running in a nonpartisan race, and uh, former legislator, Republican legislator Beth Beskin. And they are both seeking to be placed on the ballot so they can run for the election because the election is not until May. So, Kyle, uh, uh, we, we, the, the Fulton County has our Fulton County Court has already rejected uh, the the appeal that that uh, Darden and uh, lawyers for Beth Beskin are making. It'll they'll, they'll they've now announced they're going to appeal it. But Kyle, here's why this isn't just some sort of arcane squabble. Um, Buddy Darden and Beth Beskin and John Barrow would all argue that this is denying the people of the state the right to vote for an office that is. Uh, by law, an elected office. Yeah, that's right. And I think it raises the need to have a broader debate about the governor's appointment powers and how those impact scheduled elections. There's a similar story going on in athens Clark County with the district attorney there who also is leaving his post early. Um, certainly, our focus right now is on the developments related to the coronavirus. But as we return to normalcy when that time comes, Um, It'll be important to have this debate on how much authority the governor has to delay elections versus just filling seats. You can understand the need to have this authority to fill the seats so there's not a vacancy, um, but whether that power should also include the ability to delay elections. Bill, I was in the legislature when the current Constitution was passed and voted for the Constitution as well as the uh, methods of which it is carried out today, and we had no no intention to ever be in a situation where you could produce a ridiculous result, which would lead that someone could run for election to the Supreme Court, be defeated, uh, resign before the term was up, and the governor could reappoint them. So uh, there's a, a very, very wide, wide gap here of things that need to be straightened out. I need to also say that I'm a very minor person on the team with Pope McGlamoury. And uh, Lester, Matt, Lester. Okay, we, <laughs> we. <laughs> I'm sorry, we're running out of time. I don't mean to cut you short, Kevin. You've got about 30 seconds to weigh in on this. Uh, the problem with it is simple, Bill, and it's this: people don't understand all this convoluted maneuvering, and what they will see is political uh, insiders um, doing something that just doesn't smell right, and that doesn't help any of us. And there's no more important office than an office on the state Supreme Court, and it's a shame to see this happen. All right. Um, We are out of time, except in these difficult times, we're all looking for something to make us happier, inspire us. I just, my wife pointed out to me that the Indigo Girls, those two great artists who went to Emory University together, are giving online a free concert at 6 o'clock tonight. And you can watch it by just going to their Facebook page. What a better time there is for their music, I can't tell you. Uh, And so I hope you'll all check out uh, our own Indigo Girls from right here in Georgia. In the meantime, I'll be back tomorrow with another show. I'm Bill Nygut. See you then.